The last word on Today FM with Matt Cooper. Hello, a very good evening and thank you for joining us here on this special edition of The Last Word. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. And on this evening's programme, an emphasis on some of our standout interviews of the last 18 months. We're going to hear from the author Liz Nugent, lecturer and author Katrina O'Sullivan, Mark O'Connell on his award-winning book. But first up, we have the American biographer Walter Isaacson, who has written arguably the best biography of any major business figure, that is Steve Jobs of Apple. Now, over the last number of years, Isaacson turned his attention towards the controversial Elon Musk. His latest book provides a deeper understanding of this very complicated individual. So when we met on The Last Word, I first asked him why Elon Musk wanted to buy the social media platform Twitter last year. He is somebody who's attracted to storm and drama. And when things are going quite well, as they were at the beginning of 2022, and Tesla was suddenly the most valuable car company on Earth, and SpaceX was sending rockets into orbit and landing them upright and reusing them, he didn't sit back and enjoy things. He said, I need to keep putting my chips back in the table, playing the next level of the game. And he just drove himself crazy, working 20 hours a day. And that's when, on an impulse, he bought Twitter. How much does he regret that? Well, I uh, saw in the past few weeks, there are moments he kind of regrets it, but he wants it for three reasons. One is that 20 years ago, he started a company called X.com, which was supposed to be a payments platform. It became PayPal, but he wanted it to be bigger, payments plus a social network. Uh, Secondly, he just loves Twitter and uh, is addicted to it in many ways. And he also cares about opening it up to a broader range of political speech, which, of course, can be messy and problematic because it sometimes amplifies hate speech. Uh, But I would say about two thirds of the time he's giddy and happy about owning Twitter. And about a third of the time he says, why did I ever get into this mess? But that last point you bring up about him being interested in facilitating political speech, when did that become an issue to him? That doesn't really rise its head throughout almost your entire book. It became an issue to him uh, about three years ago for a few reasons. One is the COVID shutdowns and lockdowns and shutting of factories and shutting of schools he thought went too far. And he felt that there was not enough debate around it, that if you decided that lockdowns or mask mandates were not a good idea, you got kicked off of Twitter. Secondly, the Democrats started attacking him a lot in the United States from, you know, the more um, progressive senators like Elizabeth Warren. And he kind of rankled at that. And thirdly, as a more personal thing, he had his uh, oldest child, uh, who named Xavier after his favorite uh, character in the X-Men comics, transitioned, became a daughter, Jenna, which uh, Elon got his head around. But Jenna became very much of a Marxist progressive and refused to have anything to do with uh, her father. Her father, And he felt that was because she had been indoctrinated by what some people here in the United States call the woke mind virus. So he got more conservative and populist in the past three years. Let's go back to, to his own father, because he's estranged from his own father, isn't he? Absolutely. When Elon was a child, he 
he used to get beaten up a lot because he was not very, he was socially awkward. You know, he, call, he says he has Asperger's I and mean, he has trouble emotionally relating, but he was also scrawny. And one day, uh, out of many beatings, he was beat up so badly he had to go to the hospital for four days. But the scars from that were minor compared to when he came home. And his father uh, made, made Elon stand right in front of him while his father berated him for more than an hour, saying he was stupid and it was his fault and taking the side of the person who beat him up. And that sort of dark personality, uh, you know, the old... Uh, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where somebody's personality suddenly goes dark. That's the case with Errol, and it's actually the case with Elon as well. Which raises the interesting question as to how much of his behavior is learned or how much of it is almost inherited in his DNA from his father. And it's really hard to separate those strands. Certainly, he, like his son Saxon, who's autistic, and his father, who has uh, these multiple personalities, you know, there's a lot of psychological things jangling in there. I'm no psychologist, and I'm not even sure the best psychologists know the mix of genetic versus environmental causes for such things. Certainly, uh, Elon's brother, Kimball, who's a delightful person, goes around saying, I'm the one who inherited the empathy gene in the family, because Kimball's always nice to people around him. Elon isn't. What I try to do in the book is I try to say some of these things seem deeply ingrained into the fabric of who Elon is, the dark strains and the light strains. And you, the reader, have to figure out how to sort it out because I'm not there to preach at you, to say that the guy's a total jerk or a total genius. I'm there to tell you I got to be by his side and you can see how these dark and light strands are interwoven. Well, you mentioned his father, Errol, had multiple personalities or has. Do you think does Elon Musk also have multiple personalities? Absolutely, yes. Uh, in They switch pretty quickly, too. There's times when he's in silly and giddy mode and watching Monty Python skits on his phone. There are times when he's incredibly inspiring and he'll just go into this almost monotone about why humanity has to get uh, into space and go to Mars. There are times when he gets into a very engineering mindset and he focuses intensely like on a valve, on a rocket engine and how it could be made with different materials. And then there are times, and it's pretty sudden, it's almost like a storm coming in off the Gulf of Mexico. He turns really dark and he starts coldly berating the people in front of him, never yelling and screaming, obviously never physical. But when he gets in those dark moods, it lasts an hour, two hours, three hours. He's Mr. Hyde, and he hardly remembers it when he snaps back out. But how exhausting is it for those people around him? I'll get to his work colleagues in a second. But what about his family? And what about how his relationships with the mothers of his various children have survived that? It's been difficult. Uh, he dotes on his children or always wants to be around him, as you've probably seen the pictures of him with his three-year-old, known as X. He's always on Elon's shoulder. And Elon says that the things that hurt him the most are when his other children, the teenage uh, boys in particular, uh, don't really want to be around him. They have other things they want to do. And he wants them to be at every rocket launch. Obviously, he's estranged from his old eldest daughter, Jenna, as we mentioned. And he's attracted to Storm in his emotional relationships, just as he is 
in his professional ones. And then what about work relationships? Because it seems that he is almost cruel at times in the demands that he makes of people who often become expendable, or is that a fair assessment? That's totally true. He can be very cruel and cold and callous. And he treats them sometimes as expendable. And I go through it in the book, the times he does that to people and the times he is the opposite to people. And you can see the traits it takes to be able to survive him. Uh, If you look at Gwen Shotwell, the president of SpaceX, she's been with him for more than 20 years. So I explain how people are able to deal with this incredibly intense uh, personality. But there are some people I write about in the book who have a run-in with Elon and his intensity, and they barely ever recover. So uh, it's certainly not a how-to manual on how to manage a company, but it does show that sometimes you can find people and you drive them crazy, but you also drive them to do things they didn't know they'd be able to do. You spoke earlier about his desires for Twitter, or X as he has renamed it. But what about an overall mission? Because his starting point seems to have been, been this belief that he could bring humankind to multi-planetary life. How did that develop? And does he still believe that? Oh, yes, he still believes it. He still almost chants it like a mantra. And as a you know, young, very lonely kid with no friends and small and scrawny, he would sit in the dark corner of the bookstore in Pretoria, South Africa, and read this comic books. And he'd laugh about the superheroes. He said they were trying to save the world and they wore their underpants on the outside uh, and they looked ridiculous. But at least they were trying to save the world. And it's almost who he is. Uh, He sometimes looks ridiculous, but he has three great missions from childhood, from the comic books and the sci-fi he read. One is to make uh, humans multi-planetary. Number two is to have sustainable energy on this planet through solar roofs, uh, power walls, and electric vehicles. And thirdly is to make sure that robots, artificial intelligence, are always aligned with us. He read Isaac Asimov and the danger that the robots and AI will turn on us. He believes AI safety. And he is motivated by those three missions in a almost ethereal, compelling way. And how well does he believe he's doing in them? Let's take them in turn. Will he see a manned space mission to Mars? Yes. He probably will not be on it. He has no strong desire to be like uh, Sir Richard Branson and get on the first rocket. But within five years, I think you'll have interplanetary non-manned missions. And uh, I would guess within 10 years, uh, you might even see a manned mission around Mars, probably 15 years, I would guess. And then in relation to the environment, how successful does he believe he is being in his ambitions to reduce carbon footprints, but also to develop the Tesla into the car that he has promised it would be? He began putting together the elements of Tesla with other people back when General Motors, Ford, and every other car company were getting out of the electric vehicle business. Ford was smashing, though General Motors was smashing the ones they had made. He almost more than any other person in the world, was able to force the transition to electric vehicles. 
people will find it uh, quaint if five years from now somebody buys an internal combustion engine gasoline car. We're moving to electric vehicles, and he's doing it with solar roofs and battery packs, which I think makes him uh, successful. Indeed. But what about his ambitions to make these cars to be self-driving? Has that effectively been abandoned? No, uh, it's not been very successful. Uh, It has been late, but he's more intense than ever at having self-driving. I've certainly been in the cars when they're self-driving, and I think they're a few years away from when I would trust it. But what he's done, and it's at the end of the book, which is very interesting, you know these um, chatbots, these large language model generative AI like uh, ChatGPT, they learn to do things by just observing huge amounts of data and then imitating it. Well, that's what he's now doing with cars. He's, he's uh, putting in 1 billion frames uh, an hour or so from Tesla cars around the world into a computer so that the cars will drive as if they're imitating what a good human driver would do. One last one, Walter Isaacson, and it's the third part of the things we discussed there briefly as to his ambitions, his missions. AI, artificial intelligence, is there a sense that compared to the other tech giants, he is more anxious about the way that this could develop, that he has perhaps more of a dystopian feel about this than others? Yes, he's read far too much science fiction and maybe too much Isaac Asimov. So he has a dystopian, apocalyptic view, as you said. And that's very much part of his personality, to be apocalyptic. That was, oh, the world's about to end and we all must rush in to save it. Especially with Larry Page of Google and some of the people at Microsoft and some of the people at DeepMind, he feels they're not worried enough that artificial intelligence could in some ways, leave humans behind, perhaps turn on humans. And he feels that he's got to start, as he does at the end of the book, he summons me to Austin, Texas, and tells me privately, what is now public, how he's starting his own artificial intelligence company, because the other tech people are too complacent about the dangers. And that was the author Walter Isaacson there discussing the complicated figure that is Elon Musk. After the break, we're going to hear from the author Liz Nugent about her book Strange Sally Diamond and her tendency to write about psychopathic characters. So welcome back to The Last Word, where we're listening to some of our favourite standout interviews of 2023. And the next one is with the author Liz Nugent. She joined us in March to discuss her fifth novel, Strange Sally Diamond, one that has gone on to win multiple awards. But I began by asking her to read the first paragraph of the book out loud. Put me out with the bins, he said regularly. When I die, put me out with the bins. I'll be dead, so I won't know any different. You'll be crying your eyes out. And he would laugh. And I'd laugh too, because we both knew that I wouldn't be crying my eyes out. I never cry. What's all that about? Where's that going to take us? Well, I presume you can predict that she's actually going to put him out with the bins. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) what happens. Sally puts her dead father out with the bins because she has taken his words. She's taken him at his word. And uh, Sally is uh, an individual who, you know, her world is very black and white. Um, She doesn't have nuance. She doesn't um, 
she doesn't second guess herself. She doesn't have any sort of doubts. So when somebody asks her to do something, you know, and particularly her father, who she loves very much, that's exactly what she does. And even though um, he has left her funeral instructions in an envelope that's marked to be opened after my death, she's waiting for her birthday because she normally gets a card from her on her birthday and it's coming up. So she hasn't actually opened the envelope yet. That's the kind of okay. character we're dealing with. Yeah. And how does it develop from there then? Without giving too much away, without, without oh. too many spoilers. Well, within those letters that uh, her father has left her, she finds out, she discovers that her difference, if we can call it that, is as a result of a very dark childhood trauma that she knows nothing about. Her, her first memory is her seventh birthday. And she has no recollections before that. So she discovers through these letters and then later through her father's documents and and old dictaphone tapes that she had a very, very, very traumatic childhood. So she has to sort of deal with that and come to terms with that. And in some ways, it's not that traumatic for her because because of her sort of atypical behavior. It to her, it's like as if it happened to somebody else. You know, it, she does, she's not, um, she's, she's sort of disturbed, but not traumatized. So this is a psychological thriller with a fair dose of black humour thrown into it as well. But where does this all come out of, Liz? What sort of imagination do you have? My husband keeps asking me, like, he, he reads some of the stuff I've written sometimes and he says, what have I married? <laughs> because he's really kind of shocked that I can can come up with this and you know I've I've given several different answers over many years about you know where does this darkness come from and the real answer is I don't know it's it's the kind of stuff I like to read um I I guess in in other writers but um I I don't know in my everyday life I'm I'm very sort of upbeat and life-hearted I'm not I'm not a morbid kind of a person at all but when it comes to my fiction writing, all this darkness comes out. I, and I don't know, you'll find it with a lot of crime writers that, you know, we're the best fun at the parties. It's, it's the romantic writers you have to watch. <laughs> 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 They're killing each other. Whereas we're all just having the crack. I don't know. And do you like your characters then? If you're writing about psychopaths and killers and people who've uh, cr- great cruelties towards others, do you actually like those people? I, I, funny enough, Sally is the first likable protagonist I've written. You know, all of the other main protagonists of the books I've written have been pretty monstrous. Um, Cordelia Russell in Lying in Skin Deep and Lydia in Lying in Wait and Oliver in Unraveling Oliver and all three brothers in Early Cruelties were pretty damaged, horrible people in one way or another. But Sally, I don't know, I just... She's really lovely, you know. She's really, she's simple. She's she's flawed as well. Like she can she can turn violent when she feels personally threatened. Um, she has a temper, but she also has a great sense of humor, and she, you know, she tells the truth. She tells the truth all the time, and even when it's like really inappropriate, she will always tell the truth. And I just, I really. I don't know. There's something about her I really admire. I, it sounds boastful when you're talking about a character that you created yourself, but 
you know, she came to life. And I, you know, I hate those writers who say, oh, it wrote itself because I wrote every word of it, I can tell you. And, it, you know, <laughs> it's like blood from a stone. But there's something about this character that just she didn't write herself, but she just came alive to me. And she's sort of a combination of people I've met. Um, well, I was just about here. to ask you that because yeah. how often have you met somebody who is almost recklessly honest in that they're forever truthful in what they say and what they do, almost regardless of the consequences? Yeah, I love those types of people. I, I've met one or two, you know, who, you know, you know, they say the wrong thing. They put their foot on it. You know, it's usually hilarious to the onlooker. But, you know, and they're kind of they don't understand why everybody is laughing. And Sally hates being laughed at, you know, like like the rest of us, of course. But she also has a sense of humor of her own that other people don't get, you know. So, you know, I'm playing with her. And, you know, she says a lot of things that I think but could never say. You know, she's um, she's kind of me without a filter in some ways. I was reading that you had to ditch about 30,000 words from the book, which might be helpful for a, a subsequent television adaptation. Why did you have to get rid of that much work? Um, because, well, it was the American publisher who really said um, 100,000 words is the, kind of their standard length for a crime novel. And they didn't really want it to go any further. So I have loads of extra material that was ditched. Um, my UK publisher, um, two different publishers in different territories and then different ones for different languages, um, they agreed to the to the cuts as well. So um, it was actually my Irish editor, Patricia Devey, who was the most helpful with doing the cuts, kind of, because there was a lot more about Sally and her behaviour and, you know, we were able to identify, you know, the areas that were just kind of things that Sally did, but that didn't actually move the story on. So they had to go. So it it wasn't as painful a process as I thought it would be. And plus, yeah, you're right. If ever it gets to a screen adaptation of any kind, there'll be plenty more material to use. But would that suggest a more confidence and maturing even in your writing if you're prepared to ditch something significant size that you have sweated over to produce? Um, I think it's just it's part of the process. And, you know, I really I trust my editors um, because they've been in this business for longer than I have. They know what sells. And, you know, nowadays, I think because people are, are so used to reading Twitter or, or, you know, short Facebook posts or whatever. I think a big, large book might be daunting to a modern audience. So, you know, you're looking at the books that have really taken off in the last couple of years. And you think of Claire Keegan and, you know, um, uh, writers like Donald Ryan. They write very short novels, but the, ho- the whole world is in these novels. You know, and I just think... If I can, if I can, if I can get the story across in a shorter way, I think that might be the way forward. So that's that's what I'm trying to do. I don't know if it's going to work, but um, I think in the future, yeah, I will be trying to write shorter novels, but pack as much story in as I can. And that was Liz Nugent on her book, Strange Sally Diamond. Now, next up is the university lecturer, Katrina O'Sullivan, who joined us earlier in the year following the release of her memoir, Poor. 
the book which became your favourite because you voted for it as the listener's choice last word book of the year at the Unpost Irish Book Awards. Well, this book charts Katrina's life from growing up in poverty, surrounded by addiction, to going to college and becoming university lecturer at Maynooth. But in this extract from the interview, she first explained a bit about her parents' backgrounds. My dad was adopted from Mercy Golden Bridge and we all know the stories that have emerged about um, what happened to children there. So my dad was adopted at age five. He grew up in Clontarf. He had a lovely family. But I think whatever happened to my dad within that first five years of his life may have set in motion um, the life that he ended up living. So my dad, while he was this intelligent, vivacious man, he got a great leaving cert, got offered a place in college. He also by the age of 18, had a, a developed an addiction. And my earliest memories of my dad, unfortunately, are of him injecting himself with heroin. And so my dad was this really bright, wonderful man, very loving, very kind, very but also very selfish and addicted to heroin. And similarly, my mom, so my mom is Irish family as well. She grew up in an alcoholic home. You know, part of my book is about how poverty is intergenerational and it's very difficult to escape. My mum also was a heroin addict. She grew up in poverty with violence in her childhood and she actually met my dad at a bus stop in Coventry and he asked for directions and she said, I'll come back to mine and he never left. Um, yeah, so the two of them together were these crazy hippie um, addicts who were on a path of destruction. At what age did you realise that that wasn't normal, that that wasn't how other children lived? Uh, we lived in this, uh, a really, a council estate in, in the middle of Coventry and next door neighbour's house was another Irish family. I remember being about four, I used to play with the little girl next door, we were best friends, daisy chains and wonderful stuff going on in the back garden. And I remember I, I used to see her mum call her in for lunch every day and then when she'd come back out, she'd pat her on the head or give her a hug and tell her that she loved her. And I think that was probably the first time I became aware that my mum wasn't like everybody else's mum. Age four, I started to really notice that we were different. And even though there was a lot of addiction actually in our community, ours was on the most extreme level. So like even the kids who lived in our street, they might not have been nurtured the way affluent people are. There was still food and a bit of care there. With us, there was nothing. And what age were you when your father was imprisoned? My dad was imprisoned when I was about three for the first time. I don't really remember that, but I do remember him going into prison when I was seven. So my dad was in prison three or four times. Now, he wasn't for what in... sort of reasons? So first was aggravated burglary. Second time was drug dealing. Third time was credit card fraud. And then finally drunk driving. And that was actually what sent him back to Ireland. Uh, he got remanded in custody in Birmingham for drunk driving. And when he got let out, he ran away and came back to Ireland because he didn't want to have to face. And in fairness, he sobered up, didn't he? He did, yeah. It's funny because in some senses, my dad is the villain of my story, you know, obviously with his addiction. But when my dad sobered up, he actually was, he became the hero in some senses because he was able to come back and kind of rescue me and my son from the poverty that we were living in. And in some ways, that's how I ended up in Dublin because my dad found sobriety and then came back and tried to rectify some of the harms that he'd done. What age were you when you had your first son? I was pregnant at 15, unfortunately. I wouldn't recommend that. I was pregnant. It was my destiny, though, I think. And I don't mean that in a positive way. I think girls like me... When you're not really, you don't really aspire to much because you're not shown much. Like nobody really encouraged me to even finish school. 
Uh, there's one person who stands out who did encourage you. Mm. You had a teacher, an English teacher, yes. Mr. Goulding, was it? Mr. Pickering. Pickering, sorry. Mr. Pickering, yeah. yeah. Mr. Pickering was actually, there's a couple of teachers that changed my life. I had a really good nursery school teacher who actually taught me how to wash. So she actually used to bring fresh underwear into into um, into school for me every day. And she took me into the bathroom and taught me how to wash. And she had this bag for me. So I used to head into school early and she'd I'd get changed. And she also gave us breakfast because I didn't eat. I didn't have food. So that was really important, having a teacher that cared at a really young age. But Mr. Pickering was a teacher who kind of challenged me. He he could he saw past the dysfunction because girls like me, I'm sitting in the back of the class. I'm like, I've got an attitude problem. I'm like not listening, but I am listening and I'm well capable. I just, I'm angry and hurt and society hasn't treated me very well. But this guy kind of seen that. And so he encouraged me in ways that I think is really important in education. The most important thing he did actually was share his own story with me. So he offered to, he asked me to do a job and then he told me he was a minor and he he left school at 16 and then he went back to education later. And I was like shocked because usually t- for me, teachers were these middle class people that I had nothing in common with. And this kind of kind of shared his story with me. And so, yeah, he was really pivotal. And there's a really good story. Well, a- an important story in my life, in my book, where it's parent teacher meeting. And my my mum and dad never went to parent teacher meeting. They were always drunk or drugged. And uh, the door knocks and I open it and it's him, stand, Mr. Pickering, standing at the door. I'm 14, thinking I'm in trouble. I thought, oh, my God, what did I do? And he said, is your dad there? And I was like, yeah. So I called my dad and I stood behind the door and Mr. Pickering says, I was expecting to see you at Parent Teacher, Mr. O'Sullivan. My dad was kind of like sheepish. I could hear him. And he said, I just wanted to tell you that your daughter is amazing. She's really intelligent and she's so much potential. And I think you're letting her down. And you could hear all this. I could hear it. How did you feel when you were I actually, in that moment, I felt like I grew two inches. Yeah. And I, I think it's really important that teachers understand the impact that they can have. Like, if you, if Mr. Pickering had, a, you know, measured my success by how I'd have done in school, he wouldn't have known, he would have thought that I'd failed because I ended up leaving at 15 and pregnant. But the truth is what he did for me lived on for the rest of my life. So eventually when I got the offer of going to Trinity College, the belief that he'd given me in myself, that moment and them moments when I was in the college, they were there in me. And I think teachers need to understand that, that they may not see the impact, but it's there. And that belief that he had in me has lived on forever. You say about your father becoming the hero of the story in a mm. sense of coming back and bringing you back to Ireland. Your mother, there's also a line, I may not be quoting this entirely accurately, but I think she said to you at one stage that she loved you, but she just loved the drugs more. Yeah. So I was uh, working as a postdoc in the Trinity Access programs at the time. And um, I'd been in therapy a long time at this point. But obviously, like my mum never got recovery. She never got sober. So it was she never really we were never able to heal our relationship fully. But I was healing at that time. And I I had this instinct like my mum was close to death at that point. She'd been she'd she'd been very sick. She'd had a liver transplant. And I was sitting in my office and I was like, just did she ever love me? And so I rang her. And usually when I called my mom, because I'm quite outwards and I, I would challenge her addiction sometimes, it was always tense between us. And I rang her and I just said, look, mom, I just have to ask you a question. And she's like, of course. And I was like, did you ever love me? And she's like, oh, my Katrina, I've, I loved you so much. I just loved gear more. And like, even how did you feel when she said that I to you? I felt relieved. Really? I felt so relieved because... 
I knew that. Like, like my mom was driven by something more than her love for her children. Like my mom, you know, was a sex worker when, when I was a child. And I remember her, like, my book doesn't cover my adulthood, the full adulthood. And in our adult life together, me and my mom went to therapy together. We had discussions. And in one of them discussions, like we'd had a similar kind of conversation. When she talked about the, the sex work, she said, I... All I thought was, I just need to get enough money for drugs and and chips for the kids. I was actually going to call my book chips for the kids, but we changed it. But like, I know that's hard for someone else to understand who hasn't been through it. But for me, it was a relief. Her honesty was a relief because I knew that to be true. And also it just depicted to me how difficult it is. It's not that she didn't love me. She just had this other illness that was driving her. There's so much more and don't have time to unfortunately to get to it. But what was writing the book like for you? It was actually a really emotional experience. Yeah. The one thing I, I will say, it's been lovely to be able to rediscover my mum. You know, Tilly was a really complex person, but she actually was so vivacious and so much fun. And a lot of people actually would say, oh, your dad is the reason why you're here. But I write about the fact that like my mum had this spirit where, and it might have gone the wrong way. Uh, she might have been telling people not to tell her what to do, but actually I feel as if I've been able to rediscover her and see the fact that her spirit is in me. And you're now lecturer in the Department of Psychology in Maynooth University yeah. and you do work for Microsoft and various others. Yeah. So, yeah. How could you ever have imagined that as a teenager that you'd end up doing something like that? This must be an unimaginable life that you have now. It is. And I, I honestly live most days in, in the gratitude feeling. Like there's a, there's a happiness. Like I was a cleaner in Connolly Station. Like I was the dinner lady in the Institute of Education. I, I pinch myself most days. Like when I'm in, in work actually and some of the staff are giving out about their lives or the job, I'm like, this is an amazing life. This is an amazing job. So I'm very very privileged and very grateful for the life that I have. And I'm really aware of where I come from and I actually feel quite privileged to have been poor because it gives me a perspective on life. No resentment about it? Um, I resent the system more okay. than the people. So like my parents, I have no resentment towards. I love them and I really understand that they yeah, weren't the well. social workers help? I mean, you spoke about the likes of teachers who've helped, the, the nursery teacher, yeah. your English teacher. Did the system actually try and help you in social services I, in England? I think, yeah, it, some of it did and some of it didn't. So I was let down a lot. So in terms of education, it's not enough to have one or two good teachers in the system. Like everybody should be good. Like, so from my point of view, the the expectation for a girl like me is just to finish it's the same now here in Ireland. So, you know, if you're going to a desk school, you're coming from a disadvantaged background, success is getting your leaving, sir. And the truth is, like, that limits what you, you think you can be and what you think you can do. So, like, it, I spent a very, a good few years thinking that I wasn't very clever. I didn't have any potential. And then all of a sudden, I accidentally found myself in the Trinity Access Programme through a friend of mine who'd done the course, who told me about it. And I'm getting a first. I'm like, I'm actually, I actually think I'm better than some of the other students because I've got all this stuff going on. But I'd grown up. You have up, a lived understanding. But I'd grown up thinking that I wasn't good enough. And that wasn't good enough didn't come from my parents. It came from the communication from the system in which I lived. Now, I'm also very grateful for the system that I had in the Celtic Tiger because I was able to avail of grants, childcare. I stayed on the RAS scheme. I was supported all the way through until I was ready to let go of that life and move into this wonderful life. 
I've written this book because now, if I was now, if it was today and that girl wanted to go to Trinity today, I wouldn't be able to do it. And I think it's important to highlight that, that we're not investing anymore in poverty. And that lack of investment means like girls like me can't succeed. And that was Katrina O'Sullivan, lecturer in Maynooth and author of the book Poor. Next, we're going to be hearing about Mark O'Connell's incredible telling of the story of interviewing the murderer, Malcolm MacArthur. That's after this break. The Last Word on Today FM with Matt Cooper. Welcome back to The Last Word, where we're looking back on some of our best interviews from 2023. Malcolm MacArthur is arguably Ireland's most famous living murderer, convicted of murdering Bridie Gargan 40 years ago, held responsible for the death of Donald Dunn. MacArthur has kept quiet about those eventful days which gripped the nation back in the early 1980s. That is, at least until the author, Mark O'Connell, managed to persuade him to sit down and talk to him for his book, A Thread of Violence, which won the non-fiction book of the year this year. I began by asking Mark O'Connell what made him want to write a book about a man who had murdered two people. I suppose the short answer is curiosity, you know? Like you, I would have seen him around, uh, not infrequently, particularly in the period after he was let out of prison. And I suppose I came at it from a slightly unusual angle in that I uh, did a PhD back in uh, the late 2000s, early 2010s on the work of John Banville, who wrote, uh, of course, famously, The Book of Evidences. Which may actually be John's best book. I I think it may, yeah, it it may well be. Uh, Certainly, it's it's probably his best known one. And uh, it's, you know, loosely but recognisably based on MacArthur and the uh, terrible murders that he committed in 1982 of Bridie Gargan and Donald Dunn. And, uh, you know, I, I would see him around and, you know, on a couple of occasions, I saw him as I was walking out of the library, having spent, you know, the better part of a day uh, reading about this fictional version of him and, and writing about, you know, Banville's fictional representation. So I was very fascinated by, um, at first, this sort of tension between the fictional and, and, and the real person. And I wanted to get to know uh, that that real person. It took many, many years for me to actually get to the point of, of doing it. But I suppose, as, as I said, you know, the, the initial answer was curiosity. Uh, you know, I can understand why you might have been stopped because there is a kind of a... There's an emotional and existential and moral barrier between someone like you or I who have not committed murder, have not done the worst possible thing, uh, and someone who has, you know, there's a real chasm there. But at the same time, that person is also a human being. All of these horrible, uh, you know, at times almost unthinkable things are within the bounds and within the realms of human nature. Um, So... You know, as as a writer, my curiosity kind of overwhelms any other sensibility, you know. And how did you persuade him to sit down with you? Um, in some ways, it was easier than I thought it might be. I was quite naive when I set out to, to do this, to write this book. I was quite naive about how steeply and how high the odds were stacked against him agreeing to speak to me. Um, you know, as you, I'm sure, know, uh, and as I didn't fully understand at the time, he has turned down any number of journalists and any number of filmmakers and, and documentary people and and so on over the years um, for the simple reason that uh, the uh, conditions of his release um, strongly discourage him from speaking to members of the media. Uh, I'm not a member of the media as such. I'm not... Uh, 
you know, a journalist, I, when I spoke to him, I presented myself as, as an essayist, which is how I think of myself. And it's a slightly, you know, pretentious sounding way to describe oneself to, to, to anyone. But you uh, do come from a different sort of sensibility I, to I guess the way I the do. journalists would have. I, I, I do, yeah. And, I, I, you know, uh, in, in ways that are both advantageous and not, you know, I don't have the set of skills that a journalist would have. I don't, uh, I'm not a reporter as such. Uh, so, yeah, and I think that sort of gave him the sense that, okay, I'm not a crime writer, I'm not a tabloid person, I'm not going to be coming at it from quite the same angle as those people. And I think that was enough of a, you know, that opened the door enough that he was able to, to say yes. And, and from there we, we talked, you know, pretty extensively. Over yeah, how much time did you get time. to spend with him and over how long a period? Um, we had, I mean, I couldn't tell you how many conversations we had, certainly in the, in the dozens. Um, and they often lasted for, for hours and hours, you know, um, because uh, he would just talk, you know, uh, in, in a lot of ways. One of the, I suppose, reasons why he might have agreed to talk to me was that he was lonely. Uh, he saw me as someone who uh, was opening to, to listening to his story, and, and I use that word uh, advisedly. Um, we talked, yeah, we talked for, for many, many hours um, over the course of, um, well, the, the span of the book is about a year, just over a year. Um, and so, you know, uh, I suppose... Yeah, but what did you talk about? Because you must have spoken about many things, did you, other than the actual murders themselves? Well, he knew that I wanted to, you know, he knew that I was writing a book about 1982, about the the killings, about, and I wanted to write about his life, both before and after the murders. So he knew that I was going to do this anyway. So, you know, he, uh, from his point of view, he wanted to, as he saw it, sort of set the record straight. But we, we spent a lot of time talking about his childhood and, and with good reason, I think, because... You know, when the murders happened, um, there was a lot of stuff that came out in the media about his upbringing um, in in Meath on a kind of a large estate. He comes from, sort of broadly speaking, a landed gentry kind of background. Um, and a lot of stuff came out uh, in 1982 or 1983 um, from people who kind of knew the family and would have uh, been sort of tangentially connected with the family and maybe worked for them and so on. And there were all these stories about his father being violent, his mother being cold and neglectful and him having quite a, you know, privileged but quite difficult childhood. And MacArthur's um, reaction to that is that it's simply incorrect um, and that he wanted to sort of set the record straight on that. Yeah, but has he been truthful in that, do you think? It's one of the big questions of the book. You know, there's a lot of ambiguity in the book, both in terms of what's what's true and there's a lot of moral ambiguity there's a lot of kind of gray areas in the book um i you know i present both sides in a way and i i think um from macarthur's point of view and he very sternly disagrees with this anytime i say it to him uh but i think it's very important for him to cordon off the murders that he committed um from the rest of his life from the rest of As it. if there was some sort of aberration? Um, yeah, I suppose so, yeah. Um, and he doesn't want to see um, those horrible, brutal acts as proceeding uh, from, as, as being kind of a, a, an expression of his inner self. So, But they do sort of define his life. Well, this do they is, define his personality? This is one of the major kind of conflicts in the book where, where you know, I'm sort of frequently saying, you committed murder, you committed two murders. You are a murderer, uh, and you know he would kind of say, "Well, let's let's not overstate the obvious. I, I know I did these things, but he doesn't want to see himself as a murderer. He doesn't want to be defined by this kind of bizarre, uh, as he calls it, episode in his life." And that's kind of one of the the central kind of conflicts in the book. And the- how comfortable do you feel 
spending this time with somebody who committed these dreadful crimes? Yeah, I was always, you know, uh, my position is kind of constantly examined in the book. As you know, I'm constantly kind of taking stock of the morality of what I'm doing and often very uncomfortable with it, um, very uncomfortable with, uh, you know, getting close to someone like MacArthur. And it's necessary to spend a lot of time and to to sort of get close in a, in a, in a way to, to someone like MacArthur when you're writing about him. Uh, and it's not always comfortable. But at the same time, as I said at the beginning, you know, he's not a monster. Yeah, but how important is it also to remember the humanity of the people that he killed? Yeah, absolutely. And there are, there are you know... Uh, there are moments when <clears throat> there's a kind of strange cognitive dissonance when I'm speaking to him or he's talking about, you know, he's a very erudite and eloquent man in a lot of ways. And, you know, I will be listening to him talk about physics or string theory or whatever it might be. And you'll just suddenly have this moment of of full recognition of the sheer magnitude of what he did, of the loss of those lives, of the families themselves, of what they have suffered and it's it's often very uh, difficult to square those things, but it's a real jolt and and, and a big part of our kind of <clears throat> exchanges over the time that we spent talking to each other for the book was to try and get him to um, come to uh, a, a sort of a real recognition of that. And he does, you know, it, I think there is there is remorse there. It, it's just not the kind of remorse that, um, and I explore this. So is a remorse for himself? as much as it is for his victims, because he has spent the bulk of his life in prison as a result. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a bit of both, I think. Um, it's not, you know, as, as I said to him on any number of occasions, uh, and as I explore in the book, if I had done something like what he did, if I had, you know, brutally murdered two completely innocent strangers in this basically senseless and chaotic way, or in any way at all, 30, 40 years ago, however long ago it was, I don't think my life would, you know, I would be crushed beneath the weight of those yeah. deeds. I think any person probably would say the same thing. Uh, and, you know, he sees himself as very stoic. He he understands, he says, the magnitude of what he did. Um, he understands the magnitude of the loss. He feels great remorse for it, so he says. But he doesn't think that his life should be ruined by it. Um, and, you know, there's there are moments in the book where I kind of, look at it and, and and think, you know, this man should be on his knees weeping before God for the magnitude of his sins, you know, and uh, that's that's not what it is. But, you know, I also examine why do I want that? Why do I want that from him from a moral point of view? Just a couple um, of things before we finish. How did he get on in prison? Because given that he was so, so different to most people who are in prison, mm. how was he treated? Or does he talk about that? Uh, he, we, we did talk about it quite a lot. There's very little about it in the book because, you know, he, he asked me not to speak about his time in prison. He's quite uh, cautious of, of angering the authorities in that way. And I okay. kind of had to respect that. But yeah, it, broadly speaking, um, and anyone who you speak to who uh, knew him from his time in prison, who either served with him or, or worked in, in prison, would say that he was yeah, basically a model prisoner. And he was, you know, by all accounts, I spoke to people who knew him inside. He was very well liked. He was a sort of a... Uh, a, a popular um, table quiz kind of person and, and all those kinds of things. So yeah, he, you know, in a, in a way that is quite bizarre, and I explore this in the book, he, he prides himself on his being a good citizen. Just to finish, Mark, you got a terrific book out of it, but what will you come away with from yourself out of the process of having spent this amount of time with him, as well as actually getting a book out of it? Did you get anything else out of it? I suppose, you know, it goes back to that... Um, 
initial point about curiosity. You know, I'm I'm a writer, um, and I what that means for me to be a writer is to be someone, as Susan Sontag said, who is interested in everything, and I am interested in everything. Everything that's human is a worthy subject to me. And MacArthur is a lot of things, but he's he's also human. And that was Mark O'Connell rounding up some of our favourite interviews of 2023. We're back tomorrow with a look back at some of our favourite sports interviews of the year. So please tune in then. Until then, have a very good evening.